let me re-express our mind on a note of personal privilege, the great thankfulness that we each can feel today to be able to come together, the safety and security and provision that we each have enjoyed already through the early days of this year, the capability that's ours to come together this morning in the friendly confines of this place to enjoy fellowship with God, appreciation of His Word, and to fulfill the commandments to assemble and worship the true, the almighty, and the loving God of heaven. As we meet for that occasion, and the thankfulness for some of the announcements that, that Brother Roger made earlier, certainly as we look forward perhaps to the installment of Brother Greg as, as a deacon, I might, if I might just ask you to notice that in the New Testament, the place wherein the qualifications for, for that office are listed are found in 1 Timothy 3, beginning in verse 8. So if you'd like to take the time over the next couple of weeks to read that passage and to consider with prayerfulness and thoughtfulness, and then as Brother Roger mentioned, to make uh, responses or notes and please sign them and, and hand that to one of the elders, then certainly uh, things can move along their way. And how exciting it is to contemplate the, the maturation and the growth of a congregation and the installment of, of a man, perhaps, uh, as Greg, as indeed a deacon. As you might have noted in the, in the bulletin, the lesson today is entitled, Study of Obedience. I suspect that it would be a fair statement to say that as one reads the scriptures, not necessarily in an overly cautious or careful way, but even a cursory reading, it is easy to appreciate the role that obedience plays in the sacred text. It seems that from the opening pages of Genesis to the closing pages of the Revelation, obedience is an integral part of what God would present to the human family. In fact, not only presenting it, but making demands of it. Just a few of the most notable examples perhaps could be used to begin our thinking along the way of the lesson this morning. In Genesis 6, not very many pages into the Bible, we suddenly encounter a man who is directly told in Genesis 6:14, Make thee an ark of gopher wood. Room shalt thou make within it. Pitch it within and without. God went on to provide to Noah on that occasion the specifics of a blueprint, if you please, for this rather gigantic vessel, and God told him to build it. Not many verses later, in fact, verse 22 of the same chapter we read, Thus did Noah according to all that God commanded him, so did he. He obeyed that which God had commanded. Do we not see Abraham in Genesis 12? Directly he was told by God, Up from thy kindred and from thy father's house, and go out into a land that I will show thee. Later, we read the commentary on that in Hebrews 11, verse 8. By faith, Abraham, departing or leaving from his father's house, given commandment toward that end, obeyed, not knowing whither he went. Thus, obedience seen also in the life of Abraham. In Joshua chapter 6, a rather unorthodox military strategy shared with Joshua by God. Joshua, march around Jericho once a day for six days. On the seventh day, march around it seven times, and at the appropriate time, blow the trumpets and shout, the walls will fall. Joshua and the children of Israel did precisely as God had commanded, and indeed, when they had followed that arrangement, exactly what God had said came to pass. One more time, obedience was the very critical matter under discussion. 
In Jonah 1, verse number 2, God specifically told Jonah, Arise, go to Nineveh and preach against it, for their wickedness has come up before me. Jonah was given commandment. We learn a rather valiant lesson about disobedience on that occasion. For the very next verse, Jonah, rather than proceeding to Nineveh, we learn that he proceeded to Joppa, boarded a ship to Tarshish, and fled from the presence of the Lord, or so he thought. It doesn't take long to appreciate, though, that Jonah soon regretted that very poor decision. And when that great fish spat him out or vomited him out upon the land, the very last verse of Jonah chapter 2, God again reordered a commission to him, and this time he did go to Nineveh. As we turn to the New Testament, do we not see Jesus himself saying in Mark 16, 16, He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. Thus we learn that all who would be saved have something they must do. They must believe. On that occasion, we're told they must be baptized. Here again, one must ask about obedience. May I submit to you then, it would be fair to ask, what does it mean to obey? We have perhaps piqued our attention to look at these few instances, literally and specifically, what does it mean to obey? That'll be the subject to which we will turn our attention this morning. And might we begin that with not only a definition, but also some opening remarks. And then we will more carefully attempt to identify three important cogs in the affirmation of obedience. First of all, to obey is easy to define. It literally means, and I've just borrowed the definition from the New World Dictionary, Webster's New World Dictionary, it simply means to carry out the instructions of or the orders of. When instructions or orders are given to a particular individual or group, if they carry them out, carry out those orders, they are said to obey those orders. Might we thus quickly notice in that very statement there is an inherent relationship to authority. The one giving the, the instructions or the one giving the commandment is in a position, to some degree or other, of authority. Let's then briefly consider that matter and then move into that interesting discussion about reacting to those commandments. When it comes to authority, we understand that Jesus said all authority in heaven and in earth had been given to him. Matthew 28, verse 18. However, we do appreciate that God has delegated in various and sundry ways to certain individuals one or more attributes of authority. Consider the family and especially the usage of the word obey. Children, obey your parents in the Lord for this is right. To quote Ephesians 6 verse 1. There the word obey is specifically used in reference to children. And notice the authority rests on that occasion with the parents. Children are thus to carry out the instructions of or the orders of their parents. It is to be noted then in the confines of that home, that family, that God has orchestrated the authority in the parents and the children are commanded by God to be those who are obedient to them. But notice perhaps another example with regard to the civil government. We do read in the New Testament that God has delegated or placed in, in position authority as it relates to the civil government. You and I are told to obey them, Titus 3, verse 1. 
on that occasion as Paul wrote to his son in the faith Titus, he said, put them in mind that they be subject to magistrates and to obey principalities. There's that word obey again. When commandments or orders thus are given, as long as they do not oppose the will of God and the commandments of heaven, you and I in dutifulness are to be obedient to them. Those two instances perhaps illustrate that matter of authority, but also heighten the understanding of where we shall move next in our study. Our interest today primarily is authority in matters of religion and also obedience as it relates thereto. Notice that God ultimately thus presents authority from the realms of heaven because He as the Creator and as the one who sustains and upholds all things is able thus to give commandment. He is thus able to provide orders. Look at some passages that thus illustrate God's right to demand obedience. Have you ever heard some make the rather foolish statement, well, what right does God have to tell me what to do or to make demands of me? There are those in our world who abide by such a framework as that. Let's listen to some passages wherein God makes statements relative to matters like that. In Deuteronomy 13, verse 4, early in the nature of the law of Moses, God specifically told the children of Israel, and listen, if you would, to the word obey as it appears in this text. Deuteronomy 13, verse number 4. On that occasion he said, that ye shall walk after my commandments, after the Lord, in other words. They were to fear him, keep his commandments, and obey his voice. Interesting, isn't it? There the children of Israel were specifically forewarned and told that they were to cleave unto him, serve him, fear him, walk after him, keep his commandments, and obey his voice. That's an interesting reference to the word obey, isn't it? Later in the Old Testament we learn in Jeremiah 7 that in fact God directly made a statement of what he expected of ancient Judah. This is his expectation in verse 23 of that chapter. He said, Obey my voice, and I will be your God, and you shall be my people. Interesting again, isn't it? He didn't specifically mention sacrifices and other things, for that was a necessary accompaniment to their obedience. That which listed and sat above it in priority and preeminence was, Obey my voice. That instance and that situation reminds us that God expected and demanded obedience from ancient Israel. In the New Testament, God's words are no less sure and firm. In James 1 verse 22, he said, But be ye doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving your own selves, reminding us that the intent to hear the word, though that's notable, it is not equivalent to obedience. To hear God's word is not the same as doing it, not the same as obeying it. In 2 Thessalonians 1, verses 7, 8, and 9, the rather frightening spectacle of those who do not obey is stated in words like this, To you who are troubled, rest with us, when the Lord Jesus shall be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels and flaming fire, taking vengeance on them that know not God, and obey not the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul, who is it then that will receive the eternal vengeance of the wrath of the Son of God? 
Those who do not obey the gospel. Is obedience important? Is obedience a significant, vital, essential matter? It absolutely is. Thus, may I note again the question, what does it mean to obey? If we want a careful analysis and a very thorough investigation of what it means to obey, let's use the next few moments to see if we can't answer those questions and set before ourselves, perhaps for the year 2009, a better understanding of what it means to obey God. We might even add at this point the beautiful recognition of various and sundry promises that God makes in response to human obedience. Lucas read for us just a moment ago from the fifth chapter of Hebrews. Let's notice again the very last statement of verse number 9. Notice there he said, speaking of Christ, but though he were a son, yet learned he obedience by the things which he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the author of eternal salvation unto all them that obey him. Who, Hebrew writer, is then the ones to be saved? The ones who obey him. Or consider Revelation twenty-two fourteen. Blessed are they that do his commandments, that they may have right to the tree of life and may enter in through the gates into the city. Who is it, John, then, that will be allowed to enter the glorious climbs of heaven? Those who thought good things about religion? Those who thought about going to church services? Those who had the intent to become a Christian? He said, those that do his commandments. Another reference straightforwardly to that of obedience, isn't it? One can't mistake the fact the Bible often lifts high the notability of obedience. If one then were to ask, what does it mean to obey? The first statement perhaps is an obvious one. It's the one that already in one way or another has come to our mind this morning. But let's look at three elements in the platform of truth that relates to obedience. First of all, to obey means to do that which is commanded. And today I've attempted to underline and place in bold various words to help us remember the thrust of these three points. To obey means to do that which is commanded. Let's highlight some things in the scriptures that help us appreciate that point. We could well return to the chapters 2 and 3 in the opening book in the Bible. God had given specific statement to Adam and to Eve. Verses 16 and 17 of Genesis 2, there were many trees in the garden, but there was one tree that they were not to partake of. In fact, they were not even to touch it. In fact, God said, In the day that thou eatest thereof, thou shalt surely die. Genesis 2, verses 16 and 17. However, as chapter 3 opens before our consideration, we notice the subtle tempter appears before Eve. Ultimately, by the time that he has presented that temptation to her in verse number 6, she partakes of that fruit, gives to Adam, and he partakes of it as well. Did they do what God had said? He said not to partake. They partook, hence they did not do that which he had said to do. In response to that, God presented punishments to them, again affirming that obedience is important. 
may I ask us to notice that as that disobedience is set before us, it's referenced many times in the Scriptures. In 2 Corinthians 11, verse 3, for example, you and I today are encouraged not to be led away aside from the simplicity that's in Christ like Eve was led away from the simplicity in God then. Oh, how we are told thus not to disobey. Might we notice another example as well? In Galatians 3, we can see in verse 1 that Paul wrote to the Galatians, O foolish Galatians, who hath bewitched you that ye should not obey the truth? When Paul and his companions visited the Galatian area, previously they had set forth the truth of God with regard to Christianity, and for a while the Galatians had been faithful thereto. However, the time had now come with Paul and his companions moving on to preach elsewhere. False teachers had encumbered the minds of these Galatians and they had now ceased, Paul said, to obey the truth. Can we not see in passages like these that intent is not equivalent to obedience? It does no good in the final analysis to think I intended to become a Christian, I intended to be faithful in attendance, or any number of other matters from the biblical perspective, intent alone is not anywhere close to obedience. You see, human reasoning and human rationalization is no justification for obedience. That little two-letter word, do, is a critical matter when it comes to obedience. One must do that which is commanded. To think about doing it is not good enough. To ponder the fact of doing it is not sufficient. One must do it. And so it is that our first lesson then very carefully and powerfully is merely to remind ourselves that obedience involves the doing of that which has been commanded. Can we not thus conclude that failure to do that which has been commanded is disobedience? The prefix dis changes the meaning of. It means unobedience or lack of obedience. So one way to disobey is simply not to do that which God has said for us to do. But might we notice yet another matter that's related to obedience? It's at the bottom of this same screen, and I again have underlined some things for our study. Notice that obedience is also this. Obedience means to do what is commanded in the way that it is commanded. It is entirely fair to say with regard to commandments or with regard to orders that sometimes the manner of accomplishment of those things is not prescribed. That is to say, sometimes there's a degree of liberty inherent in the performance of that order. Let us consider an example. Jesus in the Great Commission said to go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. Mark 16, verse 15 did he say in that passage the means by which we are to go? He did not. Had he specified it, that would mean we could go by no other way than what he had said. But since he did not specify the means or the manner in which one may go, you and I may go by foot, by car, by train, by boat, by internet, by pamphlet, by tract, by radio, by television, or yea, any number of other means. All of them fulfill and satisfy that commandment. But isn't it interesting that when God does specify the means or the manner in which a commandment is to be done, 
that becomes an essential component of the commandment. In other words, obedience is to do that which is commanded in the way that it is commanded. Let's consider some examples of that as well, if we might. Highlighting again the thought of what's involved in the manner of obedience. In Leviticus, the 10th chapter, beginning in verse 1, we will remember that there were two gentlemen, two priests, in fact, the very descendants of Aaron, who took upon themselves to do their godly duty of offering incense to God. God had given commandment to offer incense. There was no question about that fact. But might we notice that when Nadab and Abihu offered that incense, they chose strange fire which he had commanded them not. In response to that, verse number 2 says, Fire came out, devoured these two sons of Aaron. What is it that went awry? They were offering incense. God had said to offer incense. Did they not then obey? Did they not do that which God had said? The problem was they were offering incense, which he had commanded, but the issue came that he had told them how to do it. Back in Leviticus 6, statements had been given relative to where the fire was to be taken from. They chose to get the fire from somewhere else. So even though they were offering incense, which was a command of God, they were offering it in a way that he had not commanded, and hence it became disobedience to them. And they met the divine wrath and the divine punishment almost immediately. It's a significant thing to appreciate then that when God does specify the manner in which a command is to be carried out, that becomes an essential ingredient and an important component in the performance of that command. Another example found also in the Old Testament relates to the very nature of the Ark of the Covenant. In 1 Chronicles 13, we remember that David had the lovely desire to bring the Ark of the Covenant from the house where it was then located to the capital city of Jerusalem and to use it as a central component in the worship and service of the children of Israel. However, as they began to move that Ark, we might remember that the two boys... Ahio and Uzzah proceeded to do so, and it was riding upon a new cart, and it was being pulled by these oxen. Therein was a bit of a difficulty. David himself admitted it in 1 Chronicles 15, verses 2 and 13. For he said, We did not bring the ark according to the means that had been told to us. God in the law of Moses had specified who and who alone was to handle and move and convey and carry the ark. David admitted they had failed to do that. Was there any sin per se in moving the ark and placing it in the central position so the children of Israel could have easy access to it? Not at all. But when they started doing it in the way different from using the means that God had specified, they disobeyed. Uzzah lost his life when he touched that ark. Isn't it a significant thing to notice then that when a commandment with its means of accomplishment is given, we must appreciate the significance of carrying it out exactly in the way that God has specified. Obedience means to do that which is commanded in the way that it is commanded. Maybe a New Testament example also would be fair. In Romans 10, verse 13, the inspired apostle Paul there noted, For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. 
it then follows naturally that if one is to be saved, he or she must in some way call on the name of the Lord. Herein comes the issue. Has God said anywhere how, the means by, the manner of calling on his name? There are many in our world who would rather quickly say that little, if any, specification relative to that point has been given. I believe, though, that that's an incorrect position. In Acts twenty-two sixteen, how did Paul call on the name of the Lord? How did that man at that point known as Saul, how did he, in the face of Ananias, call on the Lord? Let's listen to the inspired speaker, Ananias. And now why tarriest thou? Arise and be baptized and wash away thy sins, calling on the name of the Lord. Here, the act of calling for Paul involved the explicit act of baptism. It involved that act of having one's sins washed away. Thus, it would follow in line of the reasoning previously in our lesson that if we thus call on God in some other way, we have not called on him, we have disobeyed, we have not done that which was commanded of us to do. The interesting thing about calling on the name of the Lord is that in the very next verse, statements aid us to understand that calling on the Lord does not involve what some in our world may so teach today. For let's let Paul explain it. The very next verse, Romans ten fourteen says, For how shall they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe on him in whom they have not heard? And shall, how shall they hear without a preacher? Blessed are the feet of those that proclaim the gospel. Paul thus affirmed that calling on the Lord involved hearing, it involved belief, it involved an open, heartfelt response to the beautiful nature of the invitation of the gospel. Calling on the name of the Lord is thus far, far more than simply speaking his name, simply mouthing, if you please, some statement of consideration of his existence. We can see then in this second statement of our study this morning how that obedience may well involve more, far more than what some may think. Again, to review, obedience involves doing that which is commanded in the way that it is commanded. And thus failure to either do what is said or to do it in the way that it is said is disobedience. In the third place, may I suggest that obedience involves a third element as well. Notice I've also underlined some statements about this one. Let's read it. Obedience is or means to do that which is commanded in the way that it is commanded for the reason that it is commanded. We've now added a third consideration. Not only is there the doing, the means of the doing, there's the reason for the doing. May we quickly again state that there are times in the sacred text that God doesn't give us the fullness of the reasons for doing various and sundry things. When he does not, you and I must simply appreciate that we must walk by faith and not by sight and carry out the things he has commanded, whether we understand it logically or not. 2 Corinthians 5 verse 7 demands that we take that approach, doesn't it? But when he gives the reason, when he provides the motivation, the justification, the reasons behind a given activity, that also becomes an important part of the command itself. Notice, if you would, the following ideas.
when that reason is provided, and sometimes in the scriptures it is, we must then appreciate the importance of it or else the Holy Spirit would not have provided it for us. One consideration might then be to ask about certain elements, say, of our worship today. We each well understand that we are to give, for instance, as we have been prospered. 1 Corinthians 16, verse 2. And we're to do so without grudging and to do so cheerfully. 2 Corinthians 9, verses 6 and 7. Question. Let's suppose that an individual contributed liberally to the nature of the church, but did so for the reason to gain a dramatically large tax write-off come tax time. Has he followed through the command that God has given to give as he's been prospered with a proper mindset and all the aspects related to New Testament giving? He has not. He has given for the reason of gaining benefit from the IRS to not be taxed so heavily due to the reasoning due to that aspect of the giving there is a problem perhaps another example might then be listed one of the acts that we appreciate that's essential in becoming a Christian is that of baptism question what about the reasoning has God given the reason for that baptism has he stated the purpose behind it there are very many with whom you and I may speak who have a very different view toward baptism. Some think that baptism is for a person who is already saved and is merely a means of introducing that person into the church. Is that the purpose of baptism? There are some who think baptism is an outward manifestation or illustration, if you will, of what has already occurred in the heart. Is that the purpose? Is that the reasoning for baptism? Far, far from it. In fact, here comes a point then for us to consider. Given that obedience involves also this purpose or reasoning behind something, let us listen to what Peter told those on Pentecost in Acts 2. Here were individuals who themselves were pricked in their heart because they had heard what he said, Acts 2.37. As Peter closed that lesson and he lifted high the fact of the Lord's death, burial, and resurrection, his ascension to glory and coronation as king, it says in verse 37, when they heard this, they were pricked in their heart and cried out, men and brethren, what shall we do? They were overcome with the fact that they had the blood of Christ upon their hands. They asked, in essence, how do we eliminate the guilt of what we've done? Peter, by inspiration, said, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the remission of sins. Their baptism thus involved directly that singular event of remitting or forgiving or taking care of their sins. And those other instances in the New Testament in which baptism is presented, the thrust behind it does not in any sense disagree with that conclusion and with that perspective. And so we notice that baptism is an act which then must be done with, for the reason that the Lord has specified. There are times when questions are asked, should a person who has been baptized be rebaptized? Well, one of the questions that must be asked, if that person has had a denominational background and was baptized for one of those reasons that we've listed earlier, the answer is yes. 
For they were not baptized for the proper reason, with a correct understanding, and hence were not obedient to the actual commandment of baptism as God originally gave it. They would thus, if they were baptized as an outward manifestation of a grace already received, that was an improper reason. In fact, it was a faulty one. If they were baptized for some reason, say, as an outward show of what the fact they were already saved, that too was an improper understanding. They never obeyed scripturally the act of baptism to start with. They would need to be rebaptized. Or in essence, one could almost say they would need to be baptized, for they were never scripturally baptized at the outset. As we consider the notion of obedience this morning, and having looked at some of the things about it, Perhaps some concluding thoughts, some concluding statements could be in order. We have tried to impress upon ourselves the importance of obedience, how often it's found in the Word of God. And we have then reminded ourselves most recently that obedience means to do what is commanded in the way that it is commanded for the reason that it is commanded. When all three of those things are present in a commandment from God, all three are significant, all three must be followed, all three must be a necessary accompaniment to that act, of, uh, that act of obedience. As we've come to this part of our lesson this morning, might we thus state that God, in His commandments and orders to the human family, says to us that to be one of His children, certain things must be done. Obedience to certain things is required. You must hear the word of the Lord. You must believe Jesus to be the Son of God, John 8, 24. You must repent of your sins, as we read in Acts 2.38. You must confess the name of Jesus, Romans 10, verses 9 and 10. You must be baptized, as we read in 1 Peter 3, verse 21. If any of those is missing, if any of those is not done in a proper fashion, then that obedience is lacking. May we ask today, if there be one or more in the audience in need of fulfilling or following through that, we'd be more than honored to be of assistance. If you have become a Christian, though, and you've walked away from the love you knew with the Savior, the situation is not hopeless. The Lord with open arms awaits your return to His loving side. He asks that you understand the sins you've committed. You repent of them, confess them. He will be happy to forgive them. We could pray on your behalf today and we'll be honored to do so. If we could be of assistance to you in either of these ways or by way of prayers for strength or other ways of Christian living and edification, we'd be honored to be of help to you today. We'd ask that you make it known to us if you would while together we stand and while we sing. <laughs>